See you guys. Um, why don't you guys open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians real quick, to Ephesians 5. If you guys don't have Bibles, you can raise your hands. Sorry, that was loud. We have some ushers that want to get you guys some Bibles. Um, as soon as you guys open there, I want to um, take a moment real quick and uh, I want to spend a moment just pray. Um, maybe you guys are familiar with some of the stuff that's been going on in the, in the world, in the news. Um, I just feel uh, I've been reading it a lot. It comes up in my Facebook news feed a lot and all the, uh, my little feedly feeds uh, news and all that type of stuff that's been going on. And uh, in a lot of ways, to be really quite frank with you, it's, it's overwhelming to me um, and it's grieving. Like, I'm not even sure how to even use other more graphic words to describe just what the angst, I, I sense that's just sort of in my heart over it. And if you're unfamiliar, in short, um, there's at least three kind of major hot spots uh, a highlight, first of which is all throughout the region of Iraq, or certain regions of Iraq, and as well as Syria. Syria's been an ongoing thing, but uh, there's a, a radical group of Islamists called uh, ISIS, uh, Islamic State um, of that region is what they're trying to do, is they're basically trying to create a revolution to overthrow um, all sorts of other government systems that were there in order to set up a really radical form of uh, Islam. Uh, it's uh, governed by what's called Sharia law, which is basically Islamic law. And um, they're, they're, it's just brutal. They're, what they're doing is they're trying to like totally, completely overthrow any other minorities. Um, they're typically run by, uh, it's called Sunni Muslims. Um, they're sort of the main uh, type of, or denomination, if you would think of Muslims. Um, but then there's other denominations, if you would, of Islam um, one of which is like Shiite, but they're basically going around and trying to overthrow all sorts of other minorities. And one of the minorities, believe it or not, uh, that's been very long-standing in Iraq uh, is, is Christianity. Um, there's actually been cities, actual cities of, uh, throughout in Iraq that are straight-up Christian. And in fact, they've been there for over 1,700 years, 1,800 years. In fact, just last week, um, basically, ISIS boasted on different websites that for the first time in uh, 1,700 years, not one Christian is no longer in that city. That every Christian has either been killed um, or converted or has been uh, driven out of their homes. Uh, families have been displaced. Uh, marriages have been crumbled, come to an end because a father has been killed or a mother has been gang raped and then slaughtered or a child has had their head beheaded. And it's, it's horrible. It's absolutely horrible what's going on there right now. And just, it, just Google it, and you'll see plenty of stuff. And the mainstream media has finally been picking this up over the past week, um, praise God, like CNN and MSNBC and so on and so forth. Um, and if, if you're like me, like I've, I've been, I've been, I feel like I've been inundating my mind so much in it to where my, my soul has been really heavy as a result of it. I was telling my wife about this yesterday, and she's like, you just need to stop. And, and, I, and she's right. I, part of me just needs to stop. And I wrestle with the fact of, I don't want to just live in denial of it either, because I think uh, our culture is literally um, geared in such a way that when you see something that is the slightest offensive to you, um, you just go watch an episode of Portlandia um, to completely remove your mind off of the sting or the pain or the grief of what's going on. That's just the way we're wired. Um, and, and I don't want to do that. I don't want to remove the pain. Um, I don't want to not feel, I want to feel um, something deep and profound for what they're experiencing. Um, so I want to pray for them. So that's the first area, region. Another is Ukraine, and for different political reasons, but Ukraine, portions of Ukraine, uh, eastern Ukraine are completely being broken down and destroyed, 
and uh, supposedly rebuilt, but uh, that's been yet to be determined um, how that's going to happen. We have missionaries on the ground there serving in Ukraine, and one of the big issues there right now are massive refugee um, populations that are, that are displaced. They don't know where to live. They're uh, literally traveling, trying to find a spot that will end up taking them. And then the other place, obviously, is like Palestine and Israel and uh, the different types of turmoil that are going on right there. And so I just I want to take a moment and invite you guys to pray. If you guys are a family, if you have children at home, I want to invite you to like, like read about this stuff, learn about it, and pray for it as a family. If you've got roommates, take time to pray about it. I think it's so easy for us. I know that I am. I confess to you guys, it's easy for me to just not even care about this type of stuff. But I want to care. I don't want to not care. So I want to urge you guys to be thinking about how you can begin to remind yourself of the pain and the suffering. Again, uh, this is not to just simply pray for our family, meaning Christian members, but minorities, anybody. I mean, these are people that are made in God's image that we, we want to care about, we want to love, um, but especially brothers and sisters in Christ, knowing that um, we're not too far different from them. I and mean, we get up in the morning, we go to church, we go worship. Um, they, they can't. They don't have that privilege anymore, any, any longer. Their worlds have been completely thrown into upheaval. So um, let's take a moment, if you guys would. Um, I'll, I'll pray. If you guys want to just bow your heads and just think about what's going on and just pray silently in your own heart, and I'll just pray over all of us and we'll finish it up. God, at the end of the day, there's just pain and there's suffering in, in parts of this world right now. God, it's, it's acute. God, the, the, the pain and the suffering that people feel has been uh, completely turned the world upside down. And some of these people, God, are our brothers and sisters. And, and the reason why their world has been turned upside down is because they follow you. No other crime, just they follow you. So God, we, we pray right now for grace to be given to them, that you would help them, that you would help moms come to grips with the new life that they may have to be forced to live with someone that they've been thrown into a harem with or they've lost their children or they don't have a husband anymore or they've endured great suffering and pain um, for other family members that are trying to make sense of walking with Jesus in a world that's completely uh, without any form of structure or order. God, we pray that you would be their order in the midst of chaos. And God, I pray for us that you would help us to, to feel and to consider and to think and to pray for suffering that's in this world. We pray, Jesus, that you as the Prince of Peace would come and bring healing into these regions in these areas. I think of even Israel and the circumstances that are there, and it's so complex, the scenarios. It's not just one easy answer that a newscaster is going to give some sort of diagnosis of it. Um, and yet, we ask Jesus that you would bring healing there, that you would bring uh, a stoppage to the pain. Jesus, you are the good shepherd. You are the one that brings wholeness. And uh, I pray that you would intervene and move and work. So, God, as your people, we want to just be faithful to pray for these things. In so many ways, we feel powerless, but we thank you, God, that with you and as we come to you and as we pray 
there's a sense of, of power that's there. We don't know how that works. We confess, God, that we don't pray enough, and yet, God, you answer and you respond uh, to prayers. So we want to do that, and we pray and ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. Um, so Ephesians chapter 5 is where we're at, and why don't you guys open there real quick. We'll take a look at verse 18 here today, and so if you've been with us for any length of time, we've been going through uh, the entire book of uh, Ephesians, and right now we're in chapter 5, and we started kind of into a brand new section, and in the section, uh, Paul begins to talk about sort of this distinction between light and darkness. And one of the things that Paul said is that for those that are in Christ, those that are Christians, have had sort of a transitional change in their lives, that they've gone from walking in darkness, uh, and again, this is sort of a, a, a metaphor that refers to death, it refers to a path of suffering, it refers to a path of brokenness. Um, in an ultimate sense, it is hell. It is literally hell. That's that's, that's where the path of darkness leads. And yet, what Paul says is that something has happened to those who have trusted in Christ to remove them off of that path of darkness and death and brokenness and hell and brought them into a path of light uh, or life or flourishing or salvation. All these different metaphors and words that we can use to describe it. And what Paul is really describing is that God has, has is interrupted or interfered with the path that we were going on and has rescued us or saved us. That's what it means to be a Christian, is that God took you off a path of brokenness and death and destruction and brought you to a path of light and life. And so with that, there's an ultimate sense that what that means for you is that when you die, you will go to heaven. Uh, you will be with Jesus until one of the days in which Jesus comes back and restores and renews the heavens and the earth, and he'll give you a brand new body, just like the body that Jesus was resurrected in. And in other words, you will live forever with God in a new heavens and a new earth. And there's an intermediary period of time that we call that heaven. So that's in an ultimate sense, that that's what God will do for you. Um, but in the meantime, in the immediate sense, uh, God has given us the ability to walk in light, to walk in a path, to walk in ways that bring life, that bring light, and that are not subject to death and darkness. And some of the elements that are death and darkness are things like unforgiveness. That's the path of death. If you are somebody that has harbored grudges for a long period of time and that just eats away at your heart and your soul, you know that that is a path of darkness. You know that living with vengeance. I mean, if you've ever watched any Chinese, like, you know, uh, karate movie, you know that like, that's the theme of every single movie. Like, some guy's, you know, great-grandpa was slaughtered by a ninja, and so the theme now becomes, I'm going to go out and attack, you know, a swarm of ninjas, and it's this personal vendetta. You know that at the end, there's a lot of bloodshed, and somebody ends up dying, because that is a path of death and destruction, to live with vengeance in your heart. That's darkness. That is darkness. So unless something interrupts that or interferes with that, something greater, um, meaning love, uh, forgiveness, then that path leads to an ultimate path of death and darkness. So in an ultimate sense, heaven, hell, uh, in, in a, in a uh, moment by moment sense, living through walking in what we would call walk in light. So what we've been basically saying is that Paul describes that as you walk in light, you will also expose the deeds of darkness. And so what we've been trying to do over the past couple of weeks is really trying to unpack and understand what it means to expose darkness. And one of the reasons why we've been trying to do that is because there's been sort of over the past 
many, many years, I guess, uh, that there's been a tendency to, for, for, for some people to think that exposure of light or exposure of darkness is nothing more than talking really bad about certain people that you don't really like. And oftentimes that describes as I'm exposing darkness. And really what we've seen over the past, you know, 25, 30, 40 years within Christianity are, you know, people might write a book. They might now in modern era, you know, start a blog. And they use it as sort of a soapbox to just attack certain people that they don't really like, they don't fit within their own theological perspective, and say, well, we're just exposing darkness. And that may or may not play into a certain form of exposing darkness, but it can't simply be limited to that. It can't be simply limited to that. It has to be more than that. That exposure of darkness is not just simply finding people that you disagree with on certain subject matters and then attacking them personally. It's got to be bigger than that. And this is what Paul is going to be saying, that our lives, as we live according to the gospel, as we live in walking the light, we will, by nature, expose the deeds of darkness. So I'll give you a couple examples of this. I'll show you kind of the very last uh, slide that's on here. It's kind of like a little chart. Maybe as we're here over the past couple weeks, you saw this. So I'll give you an example of this. So walk in light, for example, there's a series of things that walking in light looks like from verse 15 on 21. One of them, one we looked at the first week was, it looks like self-inspection or correction, meaning those that walk in the light are free to actually uh, walk circumspectly is the word that Paul uses, meaning we are free to actually look at our lives and critique areas that are out of sync with God, areas that are not reflective of the nature and the character of God. So in other words, if we're super, super impatient, you know, we're the type of person that's always flying off the handle at people that we don't really like, and maybe some have brought that to our attention, like, you know, you're always, like, impatient, you know? And if we're like, no, I'm not, knock it off, you know, you're yelling at them, then the reality is, is like, you're not free to really confront yourself, to confront the bad that's in your life because it's, it looks nothing like Jesus, but those that walk in the light are actually free to walk circumspectly, to circumspect, to walk around their life, to look at areas within their life that are not in sync with the Holy Spirit of God, that are not reflective or characteristic with the nature of God, and to challenge those things. The opposite of that would be uh, that exposes darkness. And the darkness that it exposes is the darkness of self-deception. So in other words, what darkness looks like in this particular account is just living your life never being confronted, never allowing others to speak into your life. In other words, anytime someone speaks in your life, and like, you know, you got a temper, and you immediately flare up into that temper, or you immediately get defensive, you're not free. You are actually in a path of darkness. You're not free. And, and unless something changes that, unless you, you know, enter into a season of being humbled, and you're able to actually challenge the darkness within that darkness will actually continue to circle out and not only impact and affect you, but also begin to impact and affect your family, your kids, your uh, relationships, maybe even your work, and so on and so forth. But freedom, walking in light, looks like being able to walk circumspectly, challenge yourself. So hopefully that makes sense. So uh, there's something that Paul says, and then there's sort of this counter uh, narrative or counter way of looking at this. So again, um, this is what Paul is saying in terms of walking in the light looks like this. So what we're going to look at today is that walking in the light actually looks like, in verse 18, it looks like being filled with the Spirit. It looks like being filled with the Spirit. But what that does is it actually exposes, exposes the darkness of narcotizing ourselves with substitutes. It's one of the reasons why some of you are maybe familiar with the passage. And right now I figure it would be a good time to actually read this. And I'll come back and we'll begin to unpack this. So let's read the passage. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Uh, this is a simple, small, short little verse. Uh, we'll take a look at a handful of the words that are on here. And here's what it says. Ephesians 5, verse 18, Paul says, And do not get drunk with wine, 
for which is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Do not get drunk with wine. This is the debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So the point of the matter is, is that there is a, a path of light in which what that looks like, walking in light looks like the Holy Spirit changing us, uh, controlling us, moving in us, moving through us. Darkness looks like turning to all sorts of cheap substitutes, anything, to somehow narcoticize ourselves, to somehow put to rest the anxieties in our souls. And what Paul is saying is that, no, 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 don't go back to those things that actually lead to more darkness. Walk in that which brings you to life and light, that which actually brings about what we would call the fruit of the Spirit, like love, joy, peace, patience, all those things that we would look at and say, I really want, um, or look at another people and say, you're awesome because you're so kind and you're so joyful and you're so nice. Uh, we look at those types of characteristics in other people and we're like, I want that. I don't have that. I'm grumpy and rude and cantankerous and not nice. Um, and the point of the matter is that what Paul is saying is that when we walk in the light, it will look like somebody who is filled with the Holy Spirit. So let's take a look at this because I realize that there's some phrases that Paul uses here that we'll need to unpack a little bit, okay? And, and the reason for that is because um, how many of you, uh, just by show of hands, have actually been a Christian longer than, say, five years? Raise your hand. been a Christian longer than five years. All right. Ten years. Raise your hand. Twenty years. All right. Uh, 25 years. All right. A little bit less. All right. So I think what, you'll, you, what you've noticed, obviously, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, um, you notice that there is sort of a vocabulary that Christians have. We sometimes would, you know, jokingly describe it as Christianese, which means, um, and it's not just unique to Christians, because sometimes like Christians have their own language. You know what? Everybody has their own language, all right? Everybody has their own language. Uh, people say things that are sort of uh, characteristic of the little group or genre or subculture people that they kind of hang out with. Everybody does. And so Christians are not unique in that. But what Christians need to be aware of is that when we use language, when we use certain words or phrases, we need to be aware of the fact that not everybody tracks with us. Not everybody understands what we're saying. So we might say something like, well, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Some of us might be like, well, what does that, what does that mean? If you're not a Christian or if you're unfamiliar with the, the language or the jargon, that might sound really creepy or really weird. Uh, or if you are part of the Christian community, it depends upon the different type of Christian community you're being a part of, it might mean certain things to certain people. Being filled with the Holy Spirit might be one of those buzz phrases in which means, all right, it's going to be amazing, everyone's going to go crazy and swing from chandeliers and People are going to be preaching in tongues and talking in tongues and getting nuts in here. And that might mean what it means. Like, they're fully spirit-filled right now. And for others, it might mean like, oh boy, here we go again. We don't want to talk about that because things are going to get weird. So depending upon where you come from within the Christian community or where you come from outside of the Christian community, we need to sort of unpack a little bit about what it means to be filled with the spirit. Probably more uh, important than what I'm trying to aim at, what was Paul thinking about when he was saying, be filled with the Holy Spirit? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's important for us to start. Because from there, try to understand what Paul probably meant, uh, will then begin to inform our understanding what it means to actually be filled with the Holy Spirit, how that begins to work itself out on a practical level. Does that make sense? You guys follow along so far? Um, so what I want to do is I want to just basically take a look at a handful of different words uh, that arise within the passage. So the first word that we'll take a look at is the word drunk or drunkenness. Paul says, do not be drunk with wine. Uh, we'll just take a look at the word drunk. And a lot of scholars have been a little bit baffled as to, like, why would Paul right now 
uh, in the middle of this kind of flowing and talking about the, you know, walking in the light, not walking in darkness, why would Paul introduce drunkenness? Like, um, where did this come from? Why would Paul address this? So scholars have kind of speculated, again, this is just speculation, we don't know for sure, but uh, I think in some ways it may be a little bit helpful, but the speculation is that, one, um, Paul might be actually addressing uh, some of those that might be within the Christian community, they're in Ephesus that actually have personal alcohol problems, meaning they had alcohol abuse back then, just as they do today. Um, in other words, some people actually struggle with alcohol, um, and it's too much to a point where they are actually abusive of it, and therefore, rather than them having control over it, alcohol actually controls them. Some have suggested that maybe that's what Paul is saying. Let me say this kind of as a little bit of a side note. A lot of Christians, um, this is a common question oftentimes gets, that gets asked, like, can Christians drink? That can Christians drink? And uh, to be quite frank with you, when we first planted the church many, many years ago, um, I basically came from a, a, a setting that kind of said, no, you can't drink. If you're a Christian, um, if you especially are in ministry, you should never, ever, ever, ever drink. And that was sort of the policy. And I say policy because it was something that we sort of enforce as leadership as a church here, that if you're a Christian, if you're really going to walk with Jesus, you must avoid drinking. In fact, there's a word for that. They call that teetotalism. And you're, you're not allowed to drink. The problem with that is, is that that is a rule that the Bible, the New Testament, never states. What Paul does say is don't get drunk, which is kind of an interesting insight because in the first century, there were movements within the church and even outside of the church within spirituality at large that were basically called ascetic movements. And these were movements that basically said the way to become very spiritual is to live in a way in which you remove yourself from certain uh, tangible actions in the world that by removing yourself from these things, you'll become super spiritual. So some would say, we'll take a vow of, po- vow of poverty, meaning they get rid of all their goods and their riches and their wealth, and they live in poverty. Others will say, we're going to take a vow of chastity, meaning we're not going to have sex with anybody ever, not even get married. We're going to have, take, a, take a vow of chastity. Others will say, we're going to take a vow of uh, uh, abstinence. We will avoid all forms of alcohol. And the point of the matter is, is that Paul actually addresses that mindset. And he says, look, if... if um, you know, living with that mindset that somehow thinking that by avoiding certain things is going to make you more spiritual or make you more loved by God is actually a false gospel. It's somehow earning God's favor based upon abstaining or avoiding certain uh, things. Um, in some cases, obviously, there are certain things that are maybe socially more acceptable to avoid or, uh, you know, get rid of. But the point of the matter is, is that the idea that Paul is trying to say is that if he wanted to say, uh, you know, be filled with the Holy Spirit and everybody stop drinking, Paul could have said that, but he doesn't. He just says, don't abuse alcohol. And so the question oftentimes arises is, what does it mean to be drunk? And we'll come to this in just a second. But in short, it's the idea that it's not so much how much alcohol you have, it's how much alcohol has you. And so a question a good friend of mine asked, a friend of his in his community, his faith community, his church, um, a guy came to him and he says, you know, look, I, I, I picked up a beer and I drank it the other day. And the guy asked him, my friend asked him, he says, well, can you put that beer down? Can you actually walk away from it? Do you, are you bound to it? Are you mastered by it? He says, no. He says, well, then if, if your conscience is free, then, then you can engage in it. If, be, be aware. Be aware of the fact that there may be others around you that may not have that freedom and may not have that liberty. They may be weaker in the faith and may be stumbled and troubled by that. So just be aware. Let love govern your footsteps and how you proceed and how you live your life. But the point that Paul would make here is that, in short, there is a prohibition that Paul says, don't get drunk. Just don't get drunk. And 
we could stop right there and say, well, why? You know, and that's, I think it's an important question. Why? We'll unpack it more in a second. But first of all, some scholars assume that maybe Paul's talking about those that would have personal alcohol problems. The second of which is perhaps Paul's addressing Christians in that culture, in that community in Ephesus, that are trying hard to fit in with the culture at large uh, through the common practice of what was called the worship of Dionysus or the worship of Bacchus. Bacchus and Dionysus were basically the same god, whether Greek or uh, Roman. But the point of the matter is it was the god or the god of wine, the wine festival. Um, this past summer, my wife and I and my kids actually had a chance to go up to Napa Valley. We have some uh, friends that have a house up there. We got to stay up there, and it was awesome. And we went for a drive one day through the entire region of Napa. And it was just beautiful, just stopping at some of these wineries and checking them out. It's just gorgeous. You know, they drop a lot of money in them. But in most of the wineries that we stopped that we noticed that there were these statues. And they were all statues of Dionysus, these ancient statues of Dionysus, because obviously he was the god of, of wine. And so uh, this is a practice that would have been common back in that day. And so uh, to worship Dionysus, you would get drunk. You would, you know, get the choicest wine, and, and everybody b- would get drunk. And it was it created sort of a euphoria that made you think that in that state of being drunk, uh, you are interacting with the gods. And perhaps um, there are some Christians in Ephesus that were saying, "We want to be well respected and well received by the culture at large, so we will engage in the worship of Dionysus and the worship of Bacchus by." engaging in those parties with them, getting drunk. And so perhaps some have suggested that maybe the issue here is that uh, this was a practice that was happening. Uh, others were dealing with personal uh, struggles with alcohol. Others were maybe on a larger cultural level trying to fit in with the rest of the culture around them. And Paul, whatever the case is, is he just simply says, look, don't get drunk. Don't get drunk. But then he then begins to add the reasons for this, which leads to the second thing that we'll take a look at, second word, which is the word debauchery. Now, again, Paul doesn't just simply say, don't get drunk, and just throw this prohibition out to just, you know, kind of exercise authority over the people. Guys, like, what's up? I'm the Apostle Paul, and I said don't get drunk, so therefore, don't get drunk. You don't question me either. That's not what Paul does. Paul goes on, and he actually tells them why don't get drunk. He uses a word that probably most of us never use. I don't think I've ever once said a sentence with this word in it, but it's the word debauchery. Does anybody have another alternative translation of that? Dissipation. Dissoluteness. What translation is that? You don't know. Dissoluteness. Okay. What else? Anybody else have any other? Wow, sorry. Anybody else? I think one translation might say we're in it is, is excess. So the point of the matter is, is that this is a word that needs a little bit of unpacking because we don't know, at least I didn't know, what uh, debauchery was. And so Think about it this way. Um, I got a little slide up here that basically debauchery, the way you can think about it, is that which is hopelessly sick. This is how Aristotle used it. It's a Greek word. Um, one who, by their manner of life, destroys themselves or brings about their own ruin. So in other words, think about it. Debauchery uh, is basically activity in your life. that You do something, and through the activity of your life, you're actually bringing ruin to yourself. Uh, would, would you all agree that a person that is a drunk on a regular basis will bring ruin to their life? Of course. Of course, that's, 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 that's always happening within our culture. Some of you, I know because I've talked with some of you, have parents right now that are dealing with this, struggling with this, and are, and are worried about the future of their parents' marriage, worried about the future of their parents, be, their dad uh, or mom, trying to survive and live. This is a real issue. It's one of the reasons why I think sometimes Christians have gone to the opposite extreme and said no alcohol whatsoever because it's so widely abused. And... Again, I, I got 
lot more I can say in that. I think really, if, if anything, Christians should show non-believers and even Christians how to use alcohol in a way that is not prone towards debauchery, uh, that doesn't lead towards drunkenness, that it actually can be something to be honoring, God-glorifying, but that's a whole other subject which I won't go down right now. But the point of the matter is, Paul says, don't get drunk because it leads to debauchery. It leads to ruin in your life. Uh, and then he goes on, another way of understanding this is the idea of being unruly or undisciplined or indulgent. So if you think about a child who's unruly or undisciplined, you know that unless the parent at some point uh, begins to become a good parent and begins to discipline their child and begins to speak in their child's life, that child will be set on a trajectory, on a course, that by the time they you know, get preteen and teens and so on and so forth, their life is now on a path of, of potential real ruin and brokenness because there is no discipline uh, or no uh, rules being applied to their life that would lead to them. So another way of thinking about this, it says a life that's not living up to its highest purposes, another definition could be the opposite of flourishing. So if you think about it this way, Paul is what he's saying. Let's bring this back home. Paul is saying, don't be drunk because it leads to a potential ruin or lack of flourishing in your life. So let me put it this way. Why would God issue through Paul and others in the Old Testament, warnings to be aware of getting drunk. Because by getting drunk, by doing that, by abusing it, it actually leads to an undoing of shalom, a peace in your life. Do you know that God loves you? That God actually cares for you? That God God thinks high thoughts for you? He numbers the hair on your head? This is a God that loves you. So when he speaks something into our lives... He speaks it so that you would flourish. But what we do oftentimes, we're like, ah, I don't really agree with that. I don't like God. I'm not sure if I even trust or believe the Bible. So therefore, I will take matters in life in my own hands. And what happens is we bring about our ruin. And so what God is saying through Paul is that don't get drunk with wine because it leads to an undoing of a life that flourishes. That's what Paul's saying. So, That leads then to the third thing, which is the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit have to do with all this? Now, I put the word holy in parentheses because actually the word holy is actually not in the original language there. It's just the word spirit. So raises the question, how do they know it's actually a reference to the Holy Spirit? It's because Paul is saying be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so the point of the matter is we've got to unpack a little bit about what this concept of spirit means. So... Again, we can say a phrase like, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and some of us are like, that's awesome, what does that mean? Uh, So we've got to do a little bit of uh, homework here and unpack and understand a little bit about what Paul meant with regard to the Holy Spirit. So the word spirit, especially in our world in which we live in, is one of those words that um, sociologists, probably about 50 to 150 years ago, basically uh, suspected spirituality would be on its way out. See, something happened, you know, a couple hundred years ago where... Uh, America, or human beings, I should say, began to explore and discover themselves, all right? It's called the Enlightenment, and began to realize we're really, really, really smart. Given uh, the, the right amount of equipment, given the right amount of processes and science and time, we can find answers to everything, right? So um, gone are the days where people used to sit around and be like, oh, look at the moon, it rays. it must be like on the back of a god, Like, we know that the moon is not, like, being carried on the back of a god. Or we know the earth is not, like, shuffling along on the back of a a massive elephant somewhere in the cosmos. We know that. How do we know that? 
because science. We, we, we know that. And this has led in a lot of ways to kind of a, a counter-revolt. A lot of Christians are like, I distrust science. Don't distrust science. Look, if you're a Christian, don't, don't throw science out. Science is not to be thrown on the bus. Science is just observing things and the world around us. Don't be afraid of science. But the point of the matter is, is that what happened was about 150, 200 years ago, post-enlightenment minds began to say, um, this is going to create a new world in which spirit is not needed anymore. We don't need God. We can figure out this world on our own. We can create solutions for ourselves, give it enough time. We're going to figure out answers to everything. So therefore, we don't need to rely upon the big old mystery in the sky to somehow give us answers for everything we got. In other words, spirituality we don't need anymore. No, thank you. So the point of the matter is, is uh, that's led a lot of sociologists, especially in today's culture, to be like, spirituality is out the window. And what we see here today, in fact, there's been a lot of studies that would even say within our own modern day, right? I mean, we're talking right now that there, all these studies are basically saying that millennials, um, I'm not even sure when millennials were born. What, does anybody know? It's like 1981, something like that. Millennials are, are, are no longer engaged in, in, in major uh, Christian circles. They're leaving the church in droves. They're not interested, completely disinterested and skeptical of Christianity and they don't want anything to do with it. And so there would seem to be this sense that backs up that spirituality is out, you know, it's going out the window, that millennials, the next generation of our future are basically distrusting spirituality. But the reality is, is that this is actually not true. We live in a day and age in which people are more interested in spiritual realities than ever before. And the whole notion of like millennials, look, right now I know it's kind of hard to tell, but, you know, because it's summertime and Cal Poly's out and Quest is out. But given about like a month and a half or so, something like that, this church is going to triple in size. And there's going to be all sorts of people between the ages of 18 to 35 filling this place. We're not even going to be able to find a seat anymore. So the, the reality is it's not that millennials are disinterested in spirituality. I would say, I mean, there's a whole, I'm not even going to go down that rabbit trail. But the point of the matter is, is that spirituality is, is not something that is basically being forgotten. It's being more interested in than ever. I'll give you one a classic example of that in the mainstream media, Oprah Winfrey. I mean, she is anything but a materialist. Like, she always is very clear-cut on her spirituality. I think it's a different spirituality than the Bible, very clearly. But the point of the matter is, is that she very much so is very much an advocate and a preacher of spirituality. She's the number one watched, you know, lady talk show in the world. And the point that I'm making is this, is that spirituality is not something that's being walked away from. So the point that I would make is this. When Paul says, be filled with the Holy Spirit, is Paul just saying be spiritual? The answer to that is no. Paul's not just saying be spiritual. So uh, the issue for you is to not just be spiritual, not just go out and figure out what spirituality is and somehow adopt it, because there are forms of spirituality that are actually enslaving. There are forms of spirituality that actually undo shalom, undo peace in your life, and actually enslave you and mass you and destroy you. So it's not about just simply being spiritual. It's about what Paul says. Don't get drunk because it leads to an undoing of everything that's good and purposeful within your life and peace-giving and flourishing, but be filled with the Spirit. So you guys ready? We're going to take a look at a couple of verses and wrap this up. I want you to open up real quick to the very first book of the Bible, the very first chapter of the Bible, the very first verse. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. We'll take a look at the word Holy Spirit. The word Holy Spirit, first of all, go back, maybe go back um, um, 
one slide, and we'll take a look at that word spirit before we jump in here. Word spirit basically in, uh, is, it's used in the both Hebrew and the Greek. Uh, in the Greek, it's the Greek word pneuma. In the, in the Hebrew word, it's actually the Hebrew word ruach. And depending upon what translation you have, and there's been all sorts of English translations, uh, especially in the word, uh, the word Hebrew, uh, ruach has been translated lots of different ways. I think that word actually appears maybe some 250 or 300 times or so, something like that. But different ways in which that's been translated predominantly, obviously, is like spirit. But it's also been translated as wind or breath or life or soul, spirit, blast. It's even translated as courage and in some cases as anger. Don't ask me exactly where these all appear. Um, I just pulled this from some of my Bible software, so you can actually do research. I think it might actually come from the authorized version, an older authorized version. So you can check that out and do your homework on your own. But one of the ways in which a Bible scholar, one guy described it, um, go to the next slide. His name is G. Campbell Morgan. He basically said this, that the word spirit basically implies an invisible power that's proved to be real by the results that it's produced. So if you think about it that way, the word courage or the word uh, ruach uh, basically is it's invisible power. You don't necessarily look at someone and say, oh my gosh, they're insanely courageous. Um, you can't just like look at their eyes and be like, no, they're courageous. You, you, you can't tell that just simply by looking at somebody because sometimes the most unassuming people become the most courageous people, meaning courage was already there, but you didn't know it until the right circumstance presented itself. And then they courageously went and you know, rescued the child or were able to save the little kitty cat from the tree. And they're like really courageous type people because it's invisible power that basically gets proved by the results that were produced. And the same thing is regard with the word pneuma or ruach. So another predominant way of thinking about this, uh, Hebrews would have understood the word uh, ruach as basically breath, the breath of God. Uh, Everybody for a moment, just take a deep breath and breathe out. That is very similar to the, the, the sound of the Hebrew word, huruach. It's the word that also uh, appears in the book of Genesis. When God created Adam from the dust, it says he breathed into Adam the breath of life, and Adam became a living being. The implication is this, is that on our own, in and of ourselves, we are dead. We are nothing. We are nobody. We, have, we are lifeless individuals with the breath of God in our lives, in our lungs, we come alive. This plays in a theme that Paul is saying, be filled with the Spirit, with the Ruach of God. So, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Take a look at a couple of verses of how this plays out. 1, Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And if you're familiar with the Genesis story, um, the writer begins to describe and express how God begins to, through the Holy Spirit, um, moving, working, brooding over the face of the deep, forming, shaping, reshaping things into something beautiful. Ma- in other words, making, some of would even go on to say, making order out of chaos, making order out of disorder. And that's a whole other subject, which I'm going to go down right now, because some of you might be like, well, did God create it disorderly? No, but I, I don't have time to go down there right now. But the point of the matter is, is that, What's happening, what all Hebrew scholars have recognized that the Holy Spirit was the one that was the, the instrument of God that made, brought order into being. That's what was going on. God brought order through the Holy Spirit. So turn real quick to the book of Luke chapter 1 in the New Testament. Luke chapter 1, I'll read just a couple of verses here, verse 30. 
Luke chapter 1, verse 30, it says this. And then Gabriel, this is the story of Jesus, uh, actually through, first of all, through his mother uh, who conceived. And here's what happens. It says, Gabriel the angel said to Mary, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive in your womb and bear forth a son. You will call his name Jesus. Now, this is shocking to Mary. This is shocking news because most scholars believe that Mary was maybe somewhere between 13 to 16 years old. So she's a young teenage girl. And that's, that's not the shocking part because there's been lots of young teenage girls that have given birth. The shocking part is Mary has never been sexually with another man, ever. So when the angel says, you're going to have a child, she's like, uh, how is that possible? That's what she actually asks the angel. It says, Mary then said to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? And then the angel said, listen to the angel's answer. The angel's answer comes here and says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High God will overshadow you or overcome you. And the image, the imagery that's being painted here is intended, it's language that's intended to take your mind back to Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created and the Holy Spirit brooded, moved, hovered, brought life over lifelessness. So the question that Mary asks is one that you and I ask all the time. You might not ask, you know, how am I giving birth because I've never had a child or I've never, you know, been with a man or whatever. Those are not, maybe not the questions you're ever going to ask, but the questions that you ask is how am I going to pay my bills or will I ever get married or how will I ever feel clean from this defilement, from being molested or being raped or how will I ever get past the hurt and the pain that I feel from the wounds I've had in my past? How will I ever move forth out of this life of darkness? God's answer is the Holy Spirit brings life. The power of the Most High God gives life. This is what Christianity is, guys. Christianity is God meeting us in our darkest, in our most extended point where we are at the end of ourselves, where we are nothing but described or defined by anxiety. It's in those moments that God breaks through and says, I'm here. I will help you. I will take your life of chaos and I will reorder it to something beautiful. I will take your life that's filled or defined by ashes, something that is nothing but burned out and broken, and I will bring something beautiful and restored out of it. This is the God that we have. This is, this is the good news that God does not, has not abandoned you in those places of darkness. But he's giving you life. He's giving you the option, the opportunity to come into that life. And this is what Paul is saying. This leads finally to the last word, and I'll wrap it up right here. But Paul says to be filled. Jesus actually said something, I believe it was in, uh, uh, where was it? John chapter 14. Jesus says, I have asked of the Father, and he will give you another comforter, the Holy Spirit. And what Jesus says, the Holy Spirit has been with you, but one of these days the Holy Spirit will actually be within you. So I want you to think about this. What salvation is, what God does, is God, the God who created all things by his word. God who speaks to darkness, be light and becomes light. God speaks to chaos or broods over chaos. This God that speaks to the womb of someone like Sarah who's you know, 90 years old and says, you're going to have a child, or speaks to this lady who's never had a child, or speaks to somebody in the street who's got a withered arm because they can't, they, they've been paralyzed from their birth, that Jesus speaks, that this God who does miracles, 
Jesus says, he's going to come live in you. Not out there, not that you've got to go find him, not that you have to somehow climb upstairs to access him, not that you have to somehow pay tribute to get him to look at you, not that you've got to do something or go find some spiritual journey to bring him closer to you, that he will actually come to you. And Paul says, be filled with this spirit of God. Don't turn to these substances or these substitutes that only bring about the undoing of shalom in your life. This is the God that is here. So Paul makes these specific contrasts. I'm going to look at some of the ways in which he contrasts this um, real quickly, and I'll wrap this up. So now, even though Paul doesn't necessarily uh, label these out, Paul intentionally contrasts uh, uh, being filled with the Holy Spirit with being drunk with wine. So obviously there are, it's intended for us to notice some certain similarities as well as dissimilarities. So let's take a look at some of the similarities and dissimilarities here. So first of all, uh, when he says be filled with the Holy Spirit, the idea of being filled with the Holy Spirit can be thinking about it this way. The Holy Spirit actually humanizes us. He makes us fully, truly human. That's what, the, that's what God does. It's what the restoration of Christ in us, salvation, is that sin, if you think of it this way, what sin does, why sin is so bad, why rebellion is so bad, is that what rebellion is, sin is, it's turning away from God, whom we bear his image. And when we turn away from God, we become less like him, and we bear his image. And, and sin dehumanizes, it breaks us down. That's why sometimes when people are the most vile uh, vulgar types of criminals, we often say that person is an animal. What we're really saying is there's nothing human about them. They've lost their humanity. So the Holy Spirit actually rehumanizes us. Uh, drunkenness actually dehumanizes us. I mean, <laughs> uh, don't do this, but uh, just go on YouTube and type in, you know, drunkenness. And what you'll find is a bunch of silly people doing really stupid things that Maybe to themselves, we look at it and we laugh. And like, it's so dumb, what an idiot. Uh, or maybe even when it gets done to other people, um, it dehumanizes them. It reduces them from being an image bearer who bears God's image into something that's less than human. Um, secondly, being filled with the Holy Spirit allows us to perceive more. Whereas drunkenness actually allows us to perceive less. So what drunkenness does is it basically takes your brain and it narrows your thinking down so you actually see less or think less or able to actually uh, deal with less. So it, it narrows your vision of the circumstances that are going in your life. So if you are going through a really rough time, you got a lot of issues that are dealing with, you know, back pay, bills they haven't paid or a pain or hurt from the past that you try to deal with, um, to, to, to get drunk actually narrows your view so you're not really thinking about that anymore. It sort of anesthetizes you to that pain it, by narrowing your window of vision. But we all know that obviously at some point, drunken, the state kind of wears off and, you know, you're sober again. So it never really went away. It never really actually did anything with it. Now you're stuck with it uh, the next day until you get drunk again. But what the Holy Spirit does is he deals with our hearts, not by narrowing our vision, but by giving us a bigger vision. So in other words, what it does, it takes all the problems and trials and hardships and sorrows and pain and anxieties that we bear, and it shows us where they're really situated in the palm of God's hand. Most of the times when we stress, it's because we've forgotten that our lives are in God's hands. And we just need to see that. And so Paul says, rather than getting drunk, be filled with the Holy Spirit. See the fact that God is not only in control, but he actually 
loves you. Third thing is it resensitizes us, being filled with the Holy Spirit. Drunkenness actually desensitizes us. It makes us, drunkenness makes us less able to feel pain. The Holy Spirit makes us more capable of feeling pain. If you're filled with the Spirit, you should be one that actually feels people's pain more. We have a word for that. We call it compassion. The word come means with. Passion means suffering. It means with suffering that you can look at someone's life who is going through the most profound pain and you can engage. Your heart engages. Your heart says, sorry what you're going through. But we live in a world that would love to remove all senses of pain by just sticking our mind on something and amusing ourselves. So, you know, we might kind of go through like a serial you know, series of, you know, Breaking Bad, just like spend 24 hours watching just as a means to kind of remove our mind from the pain and the hurt, not only that others may be feeling, but that we are feeling. And these are all cheap substitutes that Paul says, if you do that, as you do that, that has an impact and effect upon your life that makes you more desensitized, debauchery. So finally, being filled is actually a stimulant. Stimulant leads to life. It stimulates life. Alcohol, we all know, is actually a depressant. It brings you down. And Paul says that God's aim for you, for your life, is to get you out of darkness. Those things that have led and contributed and have kept you in darkness. God wants to interrupt and interfere that with that in your life to set you free from those things that have mastered you. So that in the freedom that God gives you, you have life. This is what Jesus wants to do. This is what God calls us to. And I want to finish with this because I want to read a passage out of the book of Acts. I'll just read it real quickly. Acts chapter 4. We see examples of the Apostle Paul, or I'm sorry, of, of Peter and John, the early church, as they would go and they would pray and they, they would do things in the early temple, just living their Christian walk out. And then oftentimes what would happen is they would encounter the officials and they would be arrested and um, it says that one of the account that they were arrested and they were standing before the officials and you know, they're basically inquiring, like, what did you guys do? How come you guys are here? Are you going to continue to do this? And it basically says this, and then Peter, I'm sorry, and, 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 uh, and Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, he was filled with the Holy Spirit that God gave him power to rather than buckle under the weight of the scenario in fear, God gave him supernatural power. And then later, Peter goes back to the rest of the church that was at home. And it says that the whole church began to pray that God would give them power and the ability to be bold uh, for the faith, for Christ, because not just because they're trying to fight for some sort of uh, faith or theological truths, but because Christ gives life. So the idea is, is that we're not just trying to move forward a faith as if we just need more faiths in this world, but Jesus that's what this is about, is that Jesus would be made much of because Jesus gives life by freeing us from darkness and bringing us into light. And that's what he offers to you now. So they go back, pray to the church, uh, amongst the church, and the church, as they're praying, says the whole entire place was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is what Paul is inviting you. In fact, the word that he uses there, be filled with the Holy Spirit, is another way of basically saying in the actual uh, Greek, to keep being filled. Filled with the Spirit because someone has suggested that we leak. And so we need constant, regular refillings of God's healing, redemptive, restorative power, energy in our lives. 
not so that we would one day get saved, that, that happens at one moment, but so that we would continue to live as if God's saving life is working through us. That gives us the power to love those that are unlovely, to share, and be generous when we want to feel stingy with our time, with our money, to give us the ability to forgive. Because look, a path of unforgiveness is a path of darkness. But a path of forgiveness is the path of life and light. And what Jesus does, he invites us into that. So I want to finish. Like, why don't we all stand? And I want to pray over us. I'll have the worship team come on up. I want to pray over us because I want to respond to this. Because some of us, we come here, and what I don't ever want is for us to just sort of become routine in what we do and what we hear. But that we would respond that as the Holy Spirit wants to enable and strengthen us to be the people that God wants us to be, it means that we've got to respond. So it's, it's Paul's challenge to the church is be filled with the Holy Spirit. It means that we don't somehow do something, we just receive it. It's not that we're bringing the Holy Spirit down. The Holy Spirit's already here. What we're doing is we're just basically saying, God, I, I want that. I want you. I'm going to invite you to that. So I'm going to pray. Why don't we all just bow our heads right now? I'm going to pray over us, and um, let's respond. We'll sing in a moment. We'll respond by partaking of communion, confessing sin. We have some people that are going to be off over to the side that would love to pray with you. So if you're here, whatever's going on in your life, whatever types of scenarios of brokenness or hurt or pain that you find yourself being challenged with right now, um, we have people that want to pray for you. Don't, don't leave here today without getting people to respond with you. Don't try to be an island. Don't be people that isolate yourself or remove yourself. There's people here that love you. So God, right now, help us, we pray. We want to respond, God, in a way that just gives you room, gives you space to do in us, for us, what you desire to do. If you're here right now and there are circumstances in your life and you just look at your life and say, I I feel like my life is chaos. I feel like my world is brokenness. I feel like I'm defined by cowardice. I feel as if I have no power to love those that are unlovely. I feel I have no power to forgive those that have offended me. I feel as if I have no generosity or joy or all of these attributes and characteristics of God in your life. Today you look at that and you're like, that's me. And I don't want that. I don't want to walk a path of darkness. I want to walk a path of light. What Paul would say, what we would say, is be filled with the Holy Spirit. You're here this morning, and I just want to give you the opportunity, and, and, and you look at your life, and you're like, that's me. I, I need to be filled with God's Spirit. The Spirit of God that hovered over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God that gave life to a 90-year-old lady, Sarah. The Spirit of God that overshadowed the life of a young virgin and put in her life. If you want this God to come into your life and bring life in those areas of just brokenness and darkness, I just want you to raise your hand right now where you're at. Just raise your hand. Just respond. It's just, you know, again, we're, this is a church. I know sometimes this is always hard. You're like, I don't want people to see me. Guys, we're a family, and we try to emphasize this as a family. And as family members, no one's here to judge you, to look at you and say, oh, they raise their hand. We're a family. We want to pray for you. So just raise your hand up really high. Really high. You're just saying, that's me. I, I need the filling 
the Holy Spirit. I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit right now. I want God's power to overcome, to possess me, and to take over me. Just raise your hand really high. Okay, if you're, if you're sitting next to someone that has their hand raised, would you mind, just keep your hand raised, all right? If you're standing by someone that has their hand raised, would you mind just gathering around them and, and laying hands on them right now? Gather around them, and, and if they're by themselves, you know, cross an aisle, do what you got to do, and go lay, lay hands on them. This is our way of saying we love you. You're part of this family. You matter to us. We care about you. You're not alone in this sorrow or pain or moment of lack because you have the body of Christ that loves you, that's here with you. So anybody else raising your hand? You don't have anybody around you praying for you. Just raise it up really, really high. Okay, so others around you can see. All right, um, those of you that are around um, laying hands on these people, just, just pray over them right now so they can hear you. Maybe in your little group, it's okay. If it might sound like a little bit chaotic. It's okay. Uh, we know what's going on. Different groups of people are praying, so that's fine. Just, just go ahead and pray out loud right now. And let's take a moment, and then we'll sing, okay? So as we finish in, in song, um, you, can, you can remain standing. You can sit. You can get on your knees on these carpets right here if you want. There's communion in the back. If you're here and you just need prayer for anything that's going on in your life, there's people over there that want to pray for you. So um, Darren's going to play for a second or two. And just You guys pray out loud so they can hear you, and then uh, we'll just finish with a song. While you guys pray, if, if you're here and you were, uh, if you've got kids in the back, if um, you wouldn't mind just in two minutes or so, uh, 35 after, make sure that you go pick them up. You're more than welcome to bring them in here and just kind of watch them. That's fine. Um, but we just want to make sure that we relieve the children's ministry workers back there. So, God, right now, uh, meet us here as we sing. God, meet those here that are hurting, that need your help, that need your strength fall fresh upon them, Holy Spirit. Give them everything they need. Let the life and creative power of God be to them. Life. Bring them into light. Help them. Got to turn from those things that break them, that bring about debauchery and that undo the good things that you want to do in their lives and let them turn to Jesus by way of repentance. So we want to sing to you now, God, in response.